Amen, amen. Let's pray. Lord, we, just, we are so grateful to come together as a community and be able to celebrate this extraordinary event, this season the world thinks about, at least for a moment, thinks about the possibility of God taking on human flesh, Lord, and we as a community not only think about it, but we, we want to live into that reality. Lord, we're desperate for your word. We're desperate for your spirit. Um, Lord, we're asking you in the precious name of Jesus to be among us today and guide us and speak to each one of us individually right where we are in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. That is awesome, huh? Wow. It's good to see everybody. I didn't know if anybody's going to come. I everybody, oh yeah, we're going back for, everybody I talked to, we we're going back for Christmas and yet not everybody was going back. I just talked to the wrong people, didn't I? So, uh, by the way, if you're, if, if you're here as a guest, would you mind raising your hand? Family, friends, all that, welcome, welcome. We're so great. Many of you I got a chance to meet uh, before, and it was just so good to see friends. It's uh, like a little mini homecoming, but that's kind of what the desert is like, isn't it? It's like it's just a mini homecoming. I feel like I'm always having a homecoming, people leaving, coming, going. It's just kind of the nature of the valley. It's just the nature of the beast. Um, before I get going here, I want to uh, talk to you about an event, an outreach, a true outreach event we're going to be having in January, okay? So there's outreach events, and this is an outreach event. This is, not, this is not a Christian potluck. This is not where we just get together, and isn't it great to be with our Christian friends? We get to do that on Sundays. Every week we get to do that. But this is truly an opportunity for you to bring your friends, and because we are, we try to, you know, become all things to all men, Paul said, but that by all means, we might be able to save some. Like it or not, this valley is built on golf, tennis, that kind of world. So in January, we have the classic that's come. It's always going to be the Bob Hope in my heart. It just is. But uh, it's now, it's called the classic this year. I don't think they have a title sponsor. But that week, we have decided, and there have been a couple of men that have agreed to sponsor the entire event. We're going to have an event with some PGA Tour players, Mark Wilson, uh, some of you know Rick and Pam, it's uh, uh, Rick's uh, a daughter, uh, Amy, it's her husband, she was the president of the PGA Tour Watch Association, Mark won five times on the tour, won this event here in the desert a number of years back. He's going to be with us. I'm going to try to get Amy up there as well. We're going to have some other tour players. I don't know who exactly who it's going to be yet. Maybe Stuart Sink or Aaron Badley. I've talked to Zach Johnson. So we're, we've got a few things up in the air. It's going to be a great evening. We're going to, we, we will not have enough room to do it here. So we're going to do it at the Stouffer's Esmeralda. We're partnering with the Garden Fellowship. Well, some of you may not know, but the pastor over there, Jason Duff, was the second-ranked junior player to Tiger as a junior in California and played one year at UCLA and, and then felt like God called him away from that den of iniquity and uh, into the world of ministry. So Jason and the Garden have agreed to partner with us and we'll probably have some other area ministries and then obviously Lynx players will be, Marty Jacobus will be doing that. So out, out there, and this is gonna be our first week of promotion, we need to sell this thing out, but not with just us. This is your opportunity to bring a friend, bring, and look, reach down into those pockets with your alligator arms and reach down deep and bring as many people as you can. The tickets are $20 and all the proceeds are going to go to Coachella Valley Rescue Mission because the event's already paid for. I mean, is this awesome? So... This is a chance to say, hey, I play golf or I know some golf people in my... None of you don't know golf people, right? So, and, and I wanna, I'm just going to invite them to a, to a night with the PGA Tour players. Is this an easy deal? I mean, this is a no-brainer for us, isn't it, as a church? So, anyway, all that, there's a table out there, and I wanted to do that in the midst of this uh, time now rather than an announcement because Dwayne McNett, who's helping uh, Marty and their coordinating this team he is back in Washington and if I said it prior to this and he'd be really upset so Dwayne that's for you buddy so uh anyway this is this is coming up January 15th and I think we'll sell out I really do I think we'll sell out I think we max out at 800 and uh, we do this I'm going to do it the next week in Phoenix and we'll have 1500 people and uh that'll be we do it with Scottsdale Bible Church so it's called Tales from the Tour have you got it? Everybody on the same page? Live streamers, you better call. You're going to run out of tickets. So uh, anyway, that's going to happen out there. Are you ready to do? We're going to jump back into this. And I want to also, uh, again, 
Uh, Laura and I are very grateful for your prayers. It was a tough uh, week in the hospital. We were in the hospital all week, and uh, she's doing much better. And it was a tough, it was a challenging week, but many of you are going through challenges. And I just found out one of you was in the hospital, and I did not know you were in the hospital. You're in big trouble with me, and you know who you are. Because uh, I was just wandering the halls all night, because I was there all night, and I got to see some of our friends, Bob and Sid, and all these other people that were in the hospital. I said, I need to rent a room at Eisenhower. And just make the rounds in the middle of the night and pray for people and love on people. Um, and Pastor Paul has been part of that. And so anyway, we love you and, and uh, care about you. And thank you for caring about us. We, we appreciate it. So we're doing well. Okay, on we press into this letter to the Ephesians. We talked two weeks ago uh, about because your pastor was 40 minutes late uh, to the service <laughs> because of that traffic jam. Uh, by the way, I talked to some people. I am never going to get to the sermon today. This is terrible. I will never get to the sermon today. I talked to some people that drove around for three hours and never made it to service and couldn't get home. And finally, one of our friends, Craig and Sue, Craig was driving around. Finally, after three hours of driving around, he parked at a Ralph supermarket and walked home. <laughs> and a policeman said, sir, you can't cross here. It's in front of this uh, Iron Man bike path. And he said, go ahead and arrest me. So uh, that's for you, Craig. Another watching Atlanta. Uh, so your pastor was late. I was uh, out of it, being back in Israel. And this is—I I really feel like we're—I'm back in the saddle. And yet, some of you are like, "Oh, we were hoping Pastor Paul would preach again because I heard that Pastor Paul knocked it out of the park last week." And I—I uh, just—I had so many, yeah, so many people tell me his message was very, very meaningful. Uh, to you. So, well, you know, welcome to the Holy Spirit working through Pastor Paul. So that's awesome. That's awesome. All right, onward we press. So two weeks ago, I left you. We talked about this new temple, and this is a very controversial topic. It's kind of the rebuilding of the temple. Is this going to be a literal rebuilding of the temple? Is this going to be a spiritual rebuilding of the temple? I said, in the end, I don't really I don't really know. I mean, I can give you my opinion offline, but I will tell you that this I do know, that God is building a spiritual temple today. And there are three primary things that we need to build a temple. First of all, we got to level the ground. We talked about that two weeks ago. Remove mountains. And all the prophets had seen this, by the way. We're trying to get this highway of holiness that leads back to Zion. And Zion's always a place of God's presence. God had said, I, I choose Jerusalem to put my name there forever. And so in a spiritual way, whether or not you ever have the opportunity to actually go to Jerusalem, you are on a highway that leads to the presence of God. That's called the highway of holiness. There are stones in the way. There are mountains that are very hard to traverse. There are valleys that you feel like you can't get out of. And two weeks ago, we looked at, and that was what Jesus was talking about. At times, he would reach down into the valleys and say, I know you're massively separated from me, and but you know, you've already got it good. Blessed are those who mourn. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. You know, if you're out on the streets and your life choices have made it look like you've got nothing to offer anybody, especially a, a God that might be holy, you're actually in a great position to hear about the gospel. The gospel makes sense to you almost immediately. I was talking to my friend Miguel over here, and they, the work that they do among the homeless, and he, you know, they got some pastors that go out on the homeless. It's, you know, a lot of those people, it's like, I would love to hear the message like this. That's not, you won't, will not be embraced as much if you go and sneak in behind the walls of one of these country clubs here in the valley and sneak in behind the next wall that goes into their house and behind the next wall that goes in and then finally make it into their room to tell them about the gospel. You may not be, you may not be uh, welcomed as much. They might call 911 on you. Those are mountains that need to be brought down. Valleys that lifted up, Isaiah 40, mountains that need to be brought down. So we need to clear the ground. That's what we look. First, we clear, we prepare, okay? Then we get the building material that we need to build a temple. And then we'll look at building, actually building it. So we looked at the cornerstone two weeks ago. That's Jesus. All the prophets had seen this. This is all well-documented, way in advance of Jesus, the cornerstone. And in fact, Jesus, the Messiah figure, is referenced as a rock or a stone nine different times in Scripture. The stone that smashes in Daniel 2, this, 
uh, this image, you know, of the, of the clay toes and all this and smashes all the kingdoms eventually. This will be a kingdom that, will, that all nations will bow down before. Everyone will, every tongue will confess. Every knee will bow. Everybody will see this stone as being the final stone. The cleft of the rock we've seen. The rock that was in the wilderness. 1 Corinthians 10, Paul says, yeah, the rock that was in the wilderness, it gave them drink. And that rock was Christ. Jesus himself said, build your life on this rock, not on that sand over there. When the stuff hits you, oh, some winds hit us last week. A few waves lapped up into the Cranford family. But there was a rock there. There was no fear. There was no, there was provision. There, God was just there, right? And even if the worst thing that could have happened, it it, wouldn't have, it would have affected our family in a profound way, but in an ultimate way, it wouldn't have affected our family, right? There's rock in their sand. The, the rock is Christ. The rock is the reality that Jesus was the Messiah. So now I want to press on. So Jesus is the cornerstone. All the, he's the stone that they stumble over. See, Isaiah said they're going to stumble over the stumble stone. They're going to strike this stone 700 years before they struck that stone, who was Jesus. But it was built on more. We see in Ephesians 2, verse 19 through 22, again, where we're working from this last two weeks. Three. So then you are no longer strangers or aliens. He was trying to grab the Gentiles, that's the non-Jews, by the collar and say, wait a minute, you are included. You're part of this deal too. You're not out of it. You're a part of it. He was trying to convince them that, of that, because, but they had no background. They had no pedigree. Maybe you feel like that this morning. Well, I couldn't do that. I've never been to seminary. I don't know. I don't even own a Bible. I don't know anything about it. And the invitation is always open through Jesus. You don't have to have a pedigree. You're no longer strangers and aliens, but you're fellow citizens with the saints, and you're of God's household, all those who had embraced Jesus. He's saying, this is what you are. And you've been built on the foundation of the what? The apostles and the prophets, Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole building being fitted together is growing into a holy temple. That's the temple we're talking about. In whom you also are being built together into a dwelling of God in the Spirit. So we're building a massive temple, and we're also, you're a temple. So there are little temples, individual temples, and then there's the temple, and collectively together when we come we're creating, we're part of this temple. So there are shadows here that are cast in different ways, but they're all pointing towards the reality of Jesus, his redemptive purposes, and the church who would emerge out of this. The church, that's us. It's not this building. From day one on our website, you've seen the church is not a building. It's a community. We're a community. It's a called out people group, and that's what he's saying here. So I want you to go to Hebrews chapter 1, verse 1 and 2, just to, just to listen to the language of the Apostle Paul. God, after he spoke long ago to the fathers in the prophets in many portions and in many ways, in these last days he's spoken to us in his Son, whom he appointed heir of all things, through whom also he made the world. Now, we could spend 10 years right there. I mean, Jesus is the culmination of everything that the Father had in mind. He, through him, everything was created. Now, what's amazing here, he said, but he spoke in a lot of different ways. We're going to see some of those today. One of, the, one of my favorite things to do as a Bible teacher, not necessarily just as a pastor, but as a Bible teacher, is to look at the shadows in the Old Testament. And you can see that every week. We're always back and forth and in and out of the Old Testament, seeing all these shadows that are being cast, these long shadows that are cast and finally fulfilled in Jesus, hundreds of years in advance of the time of Jesus. And he, that's what Paul is saying here. He spoke to the prophets and the apostles and in many portions and in many ways. He, that's, how, that's how he spoke to uh, the fathers and the prophets, not the apostles yet. So if you get that, you can say, okay, he, he was speaking to the prophets. So prophets make the foundation. The forefathers, the patriarchs make the foundation. Christ is the cornerstone. And then there's one other part of this foundation, and that's these disciples, these disciples, you talk about no pedigree. I mean, if you think, well, I, you know, I don't know. What you see is this is not about us building the church on these guys. And that's one of the big, that's one of the big dividing marks, by the way, with the Catholic church and, the, and, and most 
Protestant churches. The Protestant churches is this, and we'll unpack that in a minute, is, is this built on the Pope, which is Peter, or is this built on others? And I know we have many Catholic friends here with us at Church at the Red Door, and I don't want this to be a massive dividing line, but this is an important issue that we'll have to address here in a minute. Is it built, well, yeah, it's kind of built on the apostles and the prophets, but in what way? On, based on their pedigree, based on all their uh, the, the superlatives that we could, you know, attach to their name or no, it was the fact that Jesus was able to train them and God was speaking through them. And in that way, they formed a platform. It was the word of truth in the end that he's building his church on. Thank goodness not on just the apostles because they were in many ways a mess like in many ways I'm a mess. Thank God he didn't build a church on me as the foundation, but to the degree that I'm able to communicate the word, you could in some way say, well, the church is built on Jeff. Well, is it Jeff? Of course not, but it's the word that God, he uses people. He looks for mouths. He looks for hands. He looks for feet. One of my friends this week I was talking to, and I went over and spent some time with he and his wife, and and he went through just an unbelievable surgery, 10 hours of surgery, 10 hours solid of surgery. And, and, and I asked him about it, and he said, well, the doctor came in, and, and I said, well, can we pray, doc? Can we pray before this? You know, and he didn't know if the doc was a believer or whatever, and the doctor says, yes, we can. And he says, but before we do, he said this. He said, from God's hands to my hands to you. Would you like your doctor? I'll get, you, I'll get you the number of that doctor if any of you have any <laughs> surgeries coming up. And at that point, he said everything just went whoosh. From God's hands to my hands. Well, from God's mouth to your mouth to somebody else. And in that way, you're, you're God's word to people. Never lift up people too much, but God does use hands and feet and, and mouths. He does. That's just the way he operates. So in Matthew chapter 10, I, I'm not going to read all of this, but I, Matthew chapter 10, if you're taking notes, uh, verses 1 through 13, it's just, it's just that Jesus summoned his disciples. He brought them here. He says, go out. I want you to heal the sick. I want you to raise the dead. I want you to proclaim that the kingdom is here. And in that way, they were the foundation, other foundations along with Christ and the prophets who had been speaking for hundreds of years in advance they formed this foundation of the church. So we have the apostles, we have the prophets, we have Christ, the cornerstone. Now, obviously, it's not just disciples because Paul at this time was not only not a disciple, he was an adversary of the church and his name was Saul. And that's where we're going to finish Hebrews chapter uh, 3. That's where we're going to finish this. If you look at Hebrews, cha- excuse me, Ephesians chapter 3. Well, Ephesians, Ephesians chapter 3, 1 through 11. I'm going to read this for you. It's important. So you can see that Paul had a calling to be part of this apostolic foundation of the church. And in what way is he, is he a foundation? Well, we're, thank goodness we're using his words today and we'll use many of his words today. He wrote about two thirds of the New Testament to be able to say it's part of the foundation. Listen to his language. Verse 1. Ephesians 3, for this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ, obviously after his conversion, for the sake of you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace, which was given to me for you, that by revelation, now catch that, there was made known to me the mystery as I wrote before by referring to this, when you read, you can understand my insight into the mystery of Christ. He's saying, look, this is a mysterious thing and the Lord gave me through his grace not based on anything I'd done I was trying to kill the people in the church I was trying to I was trying to round up the Jews who had believed into Jesus and bring them back to Jerusalem I mean what what kind of kind of person is this one of the foundation foundations of the church that just shows if the life of Saul who would become Paul is not a picture of grace you say well I you know I don't know if God could ever accept me. Really? Have you been trying to kill people here at CRD? Only two of you here have been trying to kill people at CRD. I mean, I'm telling you, if you, 
That's where he was, and now he's part of the foundation of the church. Why? Because there was a revelation through God's grace that was given him, this mystery. He said in verse 5, which in other generations was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed to what? His apostles and prophets in the Spirit. This is God's Spirit speaking through people. To be specific, here's the mystery. Are you ready? Drum roll, please. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body, fellow partakers of the promise of Jesus through the gospel of which I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given me according to the working of his power. Again, notice how he defers and defers and defers and, and deflects all of this. Anything that would come towards him is like, look, you think this is me? I'm a mess. I was a mess. He's making me whole, but it's a revelation. It's grace. It's, it's a gift that he gave me. To me, the very least of all the saints, this grace was given to preach to the Gentiles the unfathomable riches of Christ and bring to light what is the administration of the mystery which has for ages been hidden in God who created all things. In other words, nobody saw this coming. Gentiles, pagans are going to be involved in this. We've looked at this a few weeks. This is, his, this is the emphasis he has in this letter to the Ephesians. And here's why. Catch this, so that the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known through the church to the rulers and authorities in heavenly places. This was in accordance with the eternal purpose which he carried out in Jesus our Lord. Now, what does that mean? He said, not even Satan, not all the angelic realm, not all the principalities and spiritual forces in heavenly places, none of them saw it coming not to the degree that they did they thought if they could kill the seed they could kill the gospel they could kill the promise to Abraham they could kill God making a way for fallen humanity to come back for the nations to be blind and worshiping stupid things like we saw two weeks ago putting coins in mouths and this and that and crossing some you know, river and eventually go. And that's how the Romans believed. And maybe this, you know, their, their thoughts about all these pagan Greek myth, mythology and all this stuff. It just, there was, it was not historical. It was just made up fiction and everybody knew it. And that's what, that's what's unsettling to our culture today about Jesus. Because they know, even though they try to argue him away, he was an historical figure. Do you understand that? This manger is not a myth. It actually existed. Jesus existed. There's plenty of other work, works of extant manuscripts that talk about that, from Pliny the Younger to Josephus to many of these others that talked about Jesus' existence. And now we were in Israel, and one of my privileges to show people, we walk where Jesus walked, and we say, this is a synagogue, a first-century synagogue that he probably actually taught in there at Magdala. We were there, and this is a place where he was actually walked up these southern steps uh, you know, in Jerusalem, I mean, he was actually there. And this is, I mean, this is the language. This is not some myth, some Greek gods that are fighting among each other and the humans are just kind of a, in their way and part of, no, 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 this is an actually historical figure. Now, I granted, and I'm going to talk to you more about this tomorrow night at Christmas Eve, at our Christmas Eve service, but I'll tell you, God taken on human flesh, really? I mean, that's what we're buying into here. But there's good reason and there's strong intellectual reason to believe that. It's not just pulled out of nowhere. Not just some guy out in a cave that just says, well, I had, a, I had some revelations. That's not what Paul's saying here. Uh, if we didn't have Paul, then there wouldn't be any New Testament Christianity. No, God would have used somebody else because all Paul was doing was unpacking what had been written for hundreds of years in advance. He wasn't coming up with something new. It was mysterious in that it hadn't been revealed yet, but it had always been written. Does that grab you? Rather than him just coming up with these ideas because he had these thoughts, he's saying, let me show you where it was in the Old Testament. Let me show you where it was in the Old Testament. And that was, as many of you know, but I'll say it again and again and again in here, as long as I'm breathing, that was codified a couple hundred years before the time of Jesus. There's no scholarly debate on that. It's already written in the text. Paul's just unpacking it. That's all he's doing. And in that sense, it was revealed to him how to unpack it, but not just making it up out of nowhere because he was a creative writer. This is not Harry Potter. 
One, two, three, four. It's not just a creative license that he has here. He says this mystery was revealed. Gentiles are involved. And, and God did it so he could demonstrate to all these authorities in heavenly places his eternal plans that he's going to carry out in Jesus. Because let me tell you something, and we'll look at this next. Jesus is coming back for his stuff. He came to die for his people, but when he comes back the second time, he's coming back for his stuff. Are you his stuff? Sorry for the language, but are you part of his stuff? That's the question. That's what this whole Christmas season's about. He came first to die, but he's coming back a second time for his stuff. Now, Peter uses this language. You guys are living stones. Okay, listen to the language here. Okay, so we're thinking, keep thinking. I wish I, I, wish I had something built up here, a big temple or something, you know? But think about yourself being a living stone, being built into a temple. Listen to the language of Peter, 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 4. Coming to him as a living stone which has been rejected by men. First, the living stone was Jesus. But as choice and precious in the sight of God, you also, just like Jesus, are living stones. And you're being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. Why? So that you can offer spiritual sacrifices. Now, what's that? I wish we had more time on that. I'm just telling you, your spiritual sacrifices are everything you give to the kingdom. You're a volunteer. You spend your nights worrying about, you know, setting up this stage like Laney or running an event like Constance or, you know, being out front like Kristen and Chris and all the, and Denise and Danielle and all the ones that come and all of our executive team, all these people and all, just a volunteer, someone who parks cars, sets up anything. The gifts that are given financially to make this thing keep happening so we can pay our bills. All that is a spiritual sacrifice. And you're giving it here, and you're part of a thing, and you say, here, here's our sacrifice. Our, and, and the Bible used elsewhere, lifting holy hands is like a sacrifice. Worship is a sacrifice. It's all, everything you do in your relationship to make Jesus famous and to become closer to him is part of your spiritual sacrifice. He said, and it's acceptable to God through Jesus. And he says, this is contained in Scripture. Now, notice, we looked at this two weeks ago. Behold, I lay in Zion a choice stone, a precious cornerstone, that's Jesus, and he who believes in him will not be disappointed. I just, you know, I meet people all the time that say, you know, I, I was around religion and it really was, <laughs> I tried that religious stuff. I had, I've had this so many, I've tried that religious stuff and it didn't work for me. I have yet in all my years of ministry ever had anybody come and say, you know, I tried that intimate personal relationship where I really read the word and worshiped with Jesus and it just didn't work for me. <laughs> I never, never have I had that. I've had, I kind of read a book about that once. I, I saw a documentary on Jesus once. I, you know, I've heard, I've, I got religious for a little while and, you know, but never have I seen someone truly disappointed in the cornerstone who is Jesus, ever, never, that had, I mean, a relationship. I'm talking about didn't get involved in some church, you know, try to commandeer and force and heavy-handed and you got to give this and do this and come clean, come clean the bathrooms and do all this kind of stuff. I mean, you know, if you're going to be saved, you got to, and that's legalism. I'm not talking about that. You can be turned off from that. You can be turned off from that. I'm talking about this. This stone, no, this, you believe in this cornerstone, you will not be disappointed. I, I can come up here with all the fury and passion I can muster and say, I promise you, if you've never embraced Jesus, to follow him, to seek out his wisdom and counsel and that he died for you, I'm telling you, you, you go down that road, you will not be disappointed. I'm telling you. And that was written 700 years in advance of Jesus' life. It's so precious value then is for you who believe, but for those who disbelieve. The stone which the builders rejected became the cornerstone. Again, he's quoting the prophets. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense. He's quoting Isaiah 28, Isaiah 8, many other places. A stone of stumbling, a rock of offense, for they stumble because they're disobedient to the word and to this doom they were appointed. Now, you can go into your Jewish friend's home if you have that don't yet follow Jesus or if they do and they have an Old Testament or a Tanakh, you can read these very words. This is not just Christianese here. This, is, this has been around for thousands of years and well in advance of the, of the disciples. He says, but you're a chosen race. You're a royal priesthood. You're a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. 
so that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you. So that, why were we made living stones being built into this temple? So that we can proclaim this. What a privilege it is for me. Some of my tasks are not the most glorious tasks, but I, this is one of the most glorious tasks. I get to stand up in front of people every week. During the week, Bible studies. And so, but you have got the same opportunity. Stand up and just proclaim the excellencies of him. Just talk about him. Just say, he's, he's awesome. Let me tell you about him. Well, I'm not a Christian. I'm, I'm going to talk to you about Christianity. I want to talk to you about Jesus for a minute. If that ends up being, and, and again, that's semantics. You get the point. But let me just talk to you about Jesus and what he's done in my life. It's powerful. 1 Corinthians 6, listen to the language here. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit? whom you have from God, and that you are not your own, for you have been bought with a price. Therefore, glorify God in your body, your temple, your tabernacle, your booth. It's like a little booth that you have down here, a momentary tent structure called skin and bones and blood circulating through with organs, and it doesn't always work so well. A little, little wind can come along and blow over that. But you know what? There's something standing under there. The Spirit of God fills you. We will return to dust. I'm just telling you, your tent will return to dust. But your soul will go on living forever. Are you reconnected to the creator of the universe who came in a manger 2,000 years ago? I want to do this, and I think it's important. I, 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 want, to, I want to look quickly at the feast schedule and because there's going to be something that is going to be unpacked in an awesome way because we're looking again, what are the materials that the temple is built out of? So if we go back to Leviticus 23, we see this prescription for the feast schedule. There were three seasonal feasts Wake up your neighbor. Do we need a seventh inning stretch here? Because this is so important. This will grab you in a way that will rock your world. Some of you will have known this. Some of you will be hearing this for the first time. Some of you may have known, but maybe it'll even be a little deeper for you. This is one of those shadows that's cast that's so specific and awesome that will blow your mind of the perfection of God's plan and always had been way before this occurred on the earth way before. The feast schedule in Leviticus 23, he says, look, here's what I want you to do. He's telling Moses this part of Levitical law. Three times a year, they're going to come in for these three feast seasons. Now, within a feast season, there might be multiple feasts. In the spring, there are two feast seasons. One's called Passover. Actually, the feast season's called the uh, unleavened bread. But it starts with Passover and unleavened bread and then the feast of first fruits. And then 50 days after the Feast of First Fruits, 50 Penta from Pentecost will come Pentecost or the Feast of Weeks or the Feast of Ingathering can be referred to as different things in Scripture. So you say, what, is, what relevance is this with the temple? Oh, everything. Because then the fall feast, I'm going to talk to you about it. But let's look at what happened. The first two feast seasons have already been fulfilled in Christ. Jesus came not to reclaim his stuff yet. He came to redeem his stuff first. Okay, are you with me? So in terms of the spring feast, they're already done. They've already, it's already finished. It's finished. So what's how so? Passover first, unleavened bread. Passover, unleavened bread, and first fruits. What does that mean? Jesus was crucified on Passover. That's why we're church at the red door. Apply the blood to your doorpost Exodus 12, and you'll be passed over in judgment. Jesus did that. He was the final lamb. We don't need lambs anymore. He was it. It is finished. The, the whole week, uh, the whole season there, the feast season there that was the Feast of Unleavened Bread would say just ex explore and see if there's any sin in the house. Jewish people still do that to this day, looking for the sins in the house. They practice these things during a Passover celebration. And then Feast of first fruits. Now, not many, maybe Jewish people really celebrate that in a big way, but we do. Why? Because that was when Jesus, three days later, was exploded out of the grave. So they were taking these, you know, these fronds and they would bring in the some of the fruit of their harvest, the very first of it, and they would wave it before the Lord. God had told Moses to do this in Leviticus 23. 
wave it before the Lord, saying, Lord, thank you for the first fruits. Jesus, when he was resurrected, was part of the first fruits, and there was a few other resurrected with him. That was where the resurrection's already started. Jesus was resurrected. So they would celebrate. Eventually, 50 days later, they would celebrate the full in gathering of the harvest. But this was kind of the preemptive thing. The first fruits were in. Let's wave it before the Lord. On that very day they were doing that, Jesus was exploding out of the ground as the first fruits. Now, do you think that's just by chance that that happened to fall on those days? Jesus just happened to be crucified. At the very moment they were putting knives to the throats of lambs, unblemished lambs all over the, all over the nation, for this first season, Jesus is being nailed to a cross. Three days later, he's exploding out of the grave when they're waving the first fruits that have come up out of the ground. You think that's by chance? And then 50 days later, we learn in Acts chapter 1, Jesus said, you need to go and when you go to the feast season, of course, they would go. He met them in Galilee, but when you go back to the feast season, wait he was ascended after 40 days. He said, wait another 10 days for Pentecost. Now, I don't know that they really, Pentecost, what's that really mean? It's in gathering, okay? It's a, it's a biblical season. But then the Holy Spirit's poured out on Pentecost. So why? It's an in gathering of people. And then as we see, as the gospel began to go out, it wasn't just to Jews now. It was to Jews and Gentiles. So when you look at this feast season, you see, okay, that's already happened. What's going to happen in the fall? That hasn't happened yet. There are three things that occur in the fall. Some of you will know by Rosh Hashanah, right? Have you heard of that before? You have this 10 days of awe that lead up to the Day of Atonement or Yom Kippur, and that's on the day. So first you have the trumpets that signal this last feast of the three. So here the trumpet sounds, and then everybody gathers, and then now what is going to happen? And then judgment's going to happen. Say, well, don't, this is a good morning. Don't talk about judgment. Judgment happens. Jesus comes back, the trumpet sounds, and judgment, thrones are set up for judgment. Now, you're either going to be passed over or you will have rejected Christ, and you can, go at your, you can go on your own. And then what happens? And then after that's the Feast of Tabernacles where God comes and tabernacles, dwells with his people forever. He sets up, and we'll see him face to face. That's when he comes back for his stuff. Trumpet will blast, judgment set up, and then he lives with his people forever. Is that awesome? That's why we're here. That's why Church at the Red Door exists. Not because some ancient thing that we think might help us with our life, because we believe Jesus is coming back. That trumpet's going to sound. That's what Paul used the same language in 1 Corinthians 15. Trumpet sounds. 1 Thessalonians 3 will be raised. Those you know, those who are dead will be raised first, and then those who are alive at his coming and will meet him in the air. It's just this amazing thing. Jesus comes back. Then judgment's set up. The thrones are set up. The, sh the, sheep, are, and the sheep and the goats are separated. And then those who have been covered in the blood of Jesus will dwell with him forever. Not now. Not now. It's just we have his spirit. We have a foretaste of what it's like. But one day we'll see him as he, he is. And the Bible says then we'll become like him because we'll see him as he really is. It'll be the consummation of everything that's already been shadowed through all of this. Uh, the Holy Spirit will no longer just reside in us. It will we'll be residing with the very foundations of the creator among us. And he'll create a new heavens and a new earth. And he'll dwell with his people forever. That's the fall feast. He is coming back for his stuff. So what does this have to do with the temple? Well, it has absolutely everything to do with the temple because this, this feast, and this is important, the Feast of Tabernacles, I want to look at that. Before we close here, I want to look at that in depth just a little bit. Hang in there with me because I think this will just boggle your mind. There were three places in the Scripture where God talks about the Feast of Tabernacles, or some major event happens. The first, 1 Kings chapter 8, verse 2, it talks about Solomon's temple. It says, And all the men of Israel assembled themselves to King Solomon at the feast. What feast? The Feast of Tabernacles. As a shadow of what's going to come one day. In the month, uh, uh, which, is the seventh month which is the seventh month. So the fall feasts happen in the seventh month, which is, by the way, the beginning of the Jewish calendar. So all this Rosh Hashanah, Yom Kippur, and then eventually 
uh, Sukkot or the Feast of Tabernacles or, or how, different, called by different names. All that occurs in the beginning of the year, but that's the seventh month for the Jewish people. But it's the beginning of time for them, which is an amazing thing. But the dedication of the temple happened on the Feast of Tabernacles. Do you think that's by chance? I don't think so. Think about this. Let's go forward now a thousand years after Solomon. Let's go to the time of Jesus. So imagine the priests being down, and it's the Feast of what? Tabernacles again. The priests go down to fill their, fill their uh, pots with this water from the pools of Siloam, and they bring it back to put it in the brazen altar, uh, excuse me, in the laver, in the bronze laver there, and they come back, and what day is it? Well, it's the Feast of Tabernacles. And in John chapter 7, catch this, verse 37, don't miss this. On this very moment, Jesus stands up, and listen to what he says. Now, on the last day of the great feast, this is the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus stood and cried out, saying, if anyone is thirsty... Let him come to me and drink. Now listen to the language there. Now verse 38. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. Is that powerful? And it says, but this he spoke of the Spirit, to whom those believed in him were to receive, for the Spirit was not yet given because Jesus was not yet glorified. So on the Feast of Tabernacles, Jesus comes in and says, wait a minute, I know this is all about these tabernacles, but he says, let me just tell you, you believe in me, you'll never thirst again. Is that not awesome? Now I want to show you one last thing. So we're going to go back in time now a little bit to Ezra. This is a rebuilding of the temple. It was a long process. It started with Zerubbabel, and then there was a, there was a long time, about 60 years, and then finally Ezra comes back and comes along. And under Ezra, they're saying, okay, he began to read the law. Now, this, I find this fascinating, and I've never seen this in a commentary, but I have to believe it's right because the whole core of this is what are the materials for the temple? Is it just Jews or is it Jews and Gentiles? And I think God was talking about Jews and Gentiles way back in the book of Nehemiah. Now catch this. If you remember in Romans, it talked about, well, they're, they're the cultivated root and they were an olive tree and they were cut off. And these wild, crazy branches of olive trees were brought in. You're a wild olive branch being brought in and grafted into something that's natural. So you Gentiles were seen as wild olive branches and, and yet the, the Jews were considered natural olive branches. It was their God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, not the, not the God of, you know, Tom and Jerry and Ted. I mean, this is, this is the God of the forefathers of Abraham, the, the, the very progenitor of the Jewish people. You wild olive branches, well, you were grafted in. It's amazing. Now listen to what this says. And when were they doing this? On the Feast of Tabernacles. Ezra just happened to be rereading the law on the Feast of Tabernacles, and look what happens. Verse 8, excuse me, verse 9. Nehemiah 8, verse 9. Then Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra, the priest and the scribe and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, this day is holy to the Lord your God. Don't mourn or weep. He'd been reading them the law, and they were just weeping and mourning and saying, man, we have messed up something royally our lives are a mess he says for all the people were weeping when they heard the words of the law that's what by the way you read this first time and you don't know jesus you'll either say that's the stupidest thing i've ever heard or you'll weep there's only two responses to this because it's indicting you read the law and you go i'm indicted i'm condemned and that's why paul said it's a ministry of condemnation it wipes you out don't sit there and go oh good i'm better than everybody else because i the law kills you. And they were weeping. And he said, go eat of the fat, drink of the sweet, send portions to him who has nothing prepared, for this day is holy to the Lord. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. So the Levites calmed the people and said, be still, for this day is holy. Don't be grieved. And all the people went away to eat and drink and send portions, celebrate a great festival. Because they understood the words which had been made known to them. Then on the second day, the heads of the father's households of all the people, the priests and the Levites, were gathered to Ezra the scribe that they might gain insight into the words of the law. They found written in the law how the Lord had commanded through Moses that the sons of Israel should live in what? Booths. 
This is, this is the Hebrew word sukkah, where we get the feast of Sukkot, or tabernacle, or dwelling place, or hut, or, you know, it's like a little hut. Jewish people do this to this day, if they're practicing at all. Uh, on this feast, they'll come out and they have these elaborate things you can go out by that, you know, the fancier you get, you know, they've got, <laughs> they've got the country club ones, and then they've got, no, I'm just kidding, but they've got these little tents that they set up, and then they add a few, you know, fruits and veg, you know, vegetation and things, and they, they'll have a meal. They won't spend time out there, but they were doing this. God had instructed them to do this to remind them of their wandering in the wilderness, are you following me? So they had to do these little tabernacles all the way through the wilderness. They had to tear them up and tear them down, build them up, tear them down, build them up, tear them down. Every time the, the shofar blew, they had to move. The cloud would move from over the whole, and it would say move, and then the whole thing. They had to pack everything up and move. So, so this was a reminder for them. Now catch this. This is, this is good. During the feast of the seventh month. So what was it? It was the feast of, it was the feast of tabernacles. So they proclaimed and circulated a proclamation in all their cities in Jerusalem saying, go out to the hills, now catch this, and bring olive branches and wild olive branches. Now I find that interesting because that was not part of the original, I never found that, I can't find that in Levitical law, but in Nehemiah it says, go ahead and find olive branches and find wild olive branches. Myrtle branches, palm branches, branches of other leafy trees to make booze as it is written. So the people went out, brought them in, made the booze for themselves, each on his roof and each in their courts and the courts of the God, and it goes on. Now, why is this significant? I think God is sending a shadow that's being fulfilled here. Paul's finally getting all this in Ephesians. He's saying, you guys are part of this building. See, I think hundreds of years before that, God had instructed Ezra, tell the people to go out and build their own little tabernacles that they can dwell in, but make sure you have olive branches, but make sure you have some wild olive branches too. These wild olive branches were a picture of the Gentiles that Paul picks up on in Romans 9, 10, and 11, especially 11. He said, you guys were just, you were wild olive branches and you've been made part of the family. And I think that's what's going on here. And it's incredibly powerful. So, look, here's, we're going to wind down. I just, I just want you to see this picture now. So there's a temple. God's at the center. We're living stones being built on a foundation, right? Christ is the cornerstone. So I'm a living stone, and you put, put me in there, all right? So I'm a living stone. And then, you know, Tom over here, he's, he's put next to me. Whoever you're kind of walking through this life with. And God's just building this massive temple with all these living stones, and God's dwelling among us. Is that true? Absolutely, that's what Peter's seen. We are the temple. But we're also individually tabernacles, places where God dwells. So it's also a metaphor is that not only is God's abode here, but we have like little tabernacles everywhere around him. So we're not only living stones, but we're actual tabernacles. Now, where this gets exciting to me is when I think about Numbers chapter 2, when he's saying, this is how I want you to pitch your tents out in the wilderness. Now, why? God, why was God doing this? You remember, Moses brings them out of Egypt. They go through the sea, and now they're in the wilderness. You know the story, Ten Commandments and all that. And they're going through, and, all, and it says, here's exactly how I want you to set up camp. Are you ready? I want you to put the tabernacle in the middle of it. They called it the tent of testimony. That's how you come to Christ. Got to go through the altar. You got to go through the showbread. Jesus is all that, the light of the world, the bread, and all this kind of thing. And so finally, there's the holy of holies, and that's in the middle of the camp. So that's, that's representative of God's presence in the ark. But there's also all these little tabernacles that had, and God said, no, you don't just, you don't just pitch your tent anywhere you want to. I want these tribes over here. I want some tribes over here. I want some tribes up here, right in the middle and surrounded by the four families of the Levites. That's where I want my presence. And then I want a bunch of tribes down here. Now, did you see that? What just happened? I want a bunch of tribes. I want, and, and I, in fact, I did the math one time. I went back and actually figured out every time, I said this many people, this many tribes. And here's what it created. Here's God's presence. Here's all these little tabernacles, these little tents, these little sukkahs, these little booths all over the place over here, all over the place over here, up here, and then one long arm. 
because there were the most were on, on the bottom here, and this whole thing traveled around the desert for 40 years. Look exactly like a cross, didn't it? Here, here, God at the center, the gospel at the center, and then all these down. And this is in your Jewish friend's Bible. You can show them these things. This is all about Jesus. It's always been about Jesus. You're a living tabernacle. Jesus is the temple. You're a living stone in the temple. And it all revolves around, it all revolves around Jesus. So when it says, yeah, you guys were involved, yeah, I don't know if we can be a living stone. Well, what about those wild olive branches that make up these little tabernacles? And uh, it just goes on and on. And then finally, when you culminate this thing, you see John chapter 1, verse 1. It says, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then John 1, verse 14, and the Word became flesh, and if you look into the Greek, it means tabernacled among us. And the Word became flesh and dwelled among us. Jesus came down into our little tabernacle. Jesus came down into our midst. I know it's hard to believe. It's just really hard to believe that that could be true. But all these prophets had seen it. And I don't even think they understood all what they were talking about. But then Jesus is building this church. And why is the church important? Well, Paul tells Timothy, it's the pillar and support of the truth, Timothy. If you don't have the church, if you don't have the people, nobody's meeting like this. Somebody says, I'm not into organized religion. I don't need any of that. Where are you going to go to where people are going to talk about things that matter? If this is true, nothing matters more than this. We come here every week so we can talk about things that matter. Please tell me there's something more than Clipper basketball. Chargers, Rams, I know you're from all over the place. I'm just using the L.A. teams. Please tell me there's something more than getting my backswing on plane. Please tell me there's something more than a good dinner or a nice or something else. Please tell me there's something more in life. That's what the church does. We're the pillar in support of the truth. And by the way, you need the church. You are the church and you need the church. We got to experience... We experience it all the time, but we really experience the love and the support of this church when our, our waves and wind were blowing a little over the last few weeks, and the church was there. We're the richest people on the planet. If you're part of this body of Christ around the world, of, I'm not talking about religious hypocrites. I don't, couldn't care less about that. That's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about people that live in a grace-filled community that know they're not perfect and they live among, but they still worship something grander than themselves and they give all and their knees bow to the glory of Jesus. That's the church. And you're so rich if you're part of the church. You get to give to the church. I don't mean it's money. I'm just talking about your lives and you get to receive from the church. You think Jesus just did this just because he just wanted it? He did it for us. The church is for you. I'm for the church and the church is for me. And if, if you've not experienced that because you're just kind of a loner out there, please become part of the church. It's made possible through Jesus. So in the spirit of Christmas... What Christmas could there possibly be without It's a Wonderful Life? <laughs> and if you don't know about It's a Wonderful Life, then you're too young for our church. <laughs> it plays every week, ten times a day, right? But this scene, I think, is a perfect picture. And this is how we're going to close. And then I'll come back and pray. But he kind of recognized in his life that he had this choice between Mr. Potter and his, his way or the right way that was bathed in sacrifice and giving. And, and he was going to lose everything and it looked like it was all over. It was all over. Except all of a sudden he had a moment that he got to look around and go, I'm the richest person in the world and see that's what happens when you're part of the church you go through some difficult times and then you look around and go I've got my family that's what we're talking about here this temple is not some it's us and God gave us us 
Let's watch this clip. from London. Oh. Mr. Gower cabled you need cash. Stop. My office instructed to advance you up to $25,000. Stop. Oh. Hee-haw and Merry Christmas, Sam Wainwright. telegram. Good idea, Ernie. A toast <laughs> to my big brother, George, the richest man in town. <laughs> friend of mine. Look, Daddy, teacher says every time a bell rings, an angel gets his wings. That's right. That's right. boy, Clarence. Look, yeah. Your life is more valuable than the savings and loan. But you got to see, Jesus didn't just die for our personal salvation. He died to make us part of a family called the temple, of which we have an historical faith. We've got foundations, folks. This really happened. Jesus came, took on human flesh, died a brutal death on our behalf to redeem us. And he's going to come back for his stuff. But in the meantime... He said, I'm going to let you be part of a family, something bigger than yourselves, so that you can give and receive and take, and all my blessings will flow into this thing called the church. It's an awesome edifice to my glory, not to yours, but it's for your benefit. It's amazing. Maybe you're here today, and you're not part of the church, and you still have some questions. Look, I'm never a guy to push anybody. You, know, you need to do your spiritual due diligence. You need to ask hard questions. The ground has to be made level. You got to do some preparation of your soil, of your heart. You don't just buy in. But once you do, never look back. But if you're not part of the church and you want to be part of the church, what better way than to do it on a Christmas Sunday? Almost. You want to do that? Pray with me. Father, we thank you for this day. Maybe you're, at the, maybe you're there and say, Lord, I, I, I didn't even know. I, maybe when I walked in, I didn't even know that you, be, I didn't know if I even believed in you, but somehow your word resonates with my soul. It makes clear my condition. 
I'm helpless without a creator. And Lord, I'm asking you by faith, would you forgive me of my sins and come and live on the inside of me? I believe in you. I want to follow you. I believe in your resurrection and that you came and took on human flesh. Lord, would you allow me to be part of your church? And I can tell you on the authority of Scripture, the answer to that is yes. And I would just advise you, if you prayed that prayer, I'm going to have some people praying down to my lower right, to your left. Just come down and tell somebody. Tell somebody. Find, seek somebody out and say, look, I decided to follow Jesus today. I don't know what all that means, but I, I have faith enough to believe in Jesus. Can you help me? And we, we'll do everything in our power to help you on your journey. And Lord, we are grateful for these next few days. We'll thank you for the, what you're going to do tomorrow on the Christmas Eve service, Lord. We're going to talk very specifically about you coming in human flesh. And Father, I pray this time can be difficult. Some people are very lonely during this time of year. It's not a time of celebration. It's a time of depression. Father, I pray that our family would come. Maybe today, if the Lord puts somebody on your heart and ask people to come and maybe have Christmas dinner with you or Christmas Eve or just let the Holy Spirit work because we're a family and we want to see, see anybody suffering on this, not on this occasion, not in this house, not in this house. Lord, we thank you, we worship you, and we honor you in Jesus' precious name. Amen, amen. Have a great Christmas. We love you, Church at the Red Door.